and the stream is engaged. But I, I got a special treat for you today, John. Uh, if everything works out okay, you are going to be the first person ever to be live on my Instagram channel too. Wow. Quite the honor. There you go. I, I have to do a special second step on this. Great. All right. So that's working. So, and there's people here. So I'm going to get this show on the road. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. Are you thinking of growing your business or beginning a journey into entrepreneurship? Take a shortcut to success by buying an existing and profitable business the right way. Visit businessbuyeradvantage.com and learn more about my online training, group coaching, and consulting services designed to help you win. All right, everyone, we've got a wonderful show lined up here today. It should be interesting and exciting and hopefully informative. I've got John Matzner, uh, who's joining me from California. Uh, John, we just had a blizzard here last night. There's drifts of snow. It's about 10 degrees below freezing. Uh, what's the weather like in San Diego? It's actually very rainy right now, but this weekend it oh. was sunny when we were on the beach. So Okay. Cool, cool. Um, for those that don't know you, and, and a lot of people do know you, John's got a pretty big following over on X. I, I, I looked it up, and I think you were at like 16,000 followers over there. Um, your handle is Matzner John over there on X. For those who don't know you, you want to give us a little bit of a background um, into your history and, and, and your journey in entrepreneurship? Sure. So I started my career as a member of the Foreign Service. So I worked in embassies and consulates around the world for the State Department, uh, primarily in Africa and the Middle East. I was an Arabist, uh, so just kind of focusing on Middle East. Had a lot of fun doing that, got out of the government in the late teens and was living in Dubai at the time, started raising money, doing foreign direct investment stuff, and parlayed that into actually using those capital relationships to start acquiring some small businesses and have, uh, I would say, stumbled and bled my way uh, into knowing more and more about what I'm doing in terms of uh, actually the types of businesses to buy, the types of um, operational challenges, how to overcome them and stuff like that. And now I'm spending almost all of my time working with uh, American companies on hiring a global workforce. So okay. uh, ways to really drive business results by hiring globally. And I, I had put out a Twitter post once about a strategy for people to to buy a business that wasn't necessarily a big business, but a business that you understood and you could see that you could grow using your own unique talents and skills. And I think you put some comments on that kind of saying, yeah, that was my experience. Uh, I think it was maybe with the floral epoxy business, perhaps you were thinking about. Uh, this was a, a garage upgrade company. Uh, yeah, okay. that did, did more than just epoxy. Uh, but um it was, it was getting in the game specifically. It was getting in the game in a way that uh, had some, you know, more or less cap downside, which we can talk about and uh, getting good, building a track record, 
but coming in specifically knowing just looking at a the kind of digital marketing scenario around this business or within the industry, knowing that I could grow it and generate customers pretty quickly. Um, mm -hmm. Then that was part of the kind of diligence process was looking at the digital marketing environment for this particular vertical and saying it was underpriced. Therefore, I know that I can generate customers consistently for this business. Yeah, I, I was actually speaking with a business owner last week and and he was talking about how he has this lean time of year. And we were discussing, you know, what he does for marketing and advertising, all this kind of thing. And um, it, it blew me away. This person has regular clients who come in all the time. He doesn't have an email list. He doesn't collect their emails, right? And so th this is the kind of thing that we sometimes see when we're looking at small businesses is like, hey, if I owned his business, that would be the first thing I would implement, like is to start to get a better uh, methodology for interacting with the clients and and maybe do some incentives or promotions for that lean time of year. Now, we connected on this boomer bummer, uh, which was a, a tagline that you had suggested. Uh, we connected on this because there um, was another conversation on Twitter about some people reaching out to you after they had done small business acquisitions who were then looking for help. And, and, and uh, for those of you who've tuned into some of my holiday chat calls, uh, you've, you've heard me go through some of those calls as well, where people do a deal and they realize that they made some mistakes in the acquisition, and then they kind of they're panicking and they're trying to figure out how they can save uh, save themselves. You want to describe or maybe relay some of the stories of some of the situations or scenarios that uh, that you were talking about in that post? Sure. So the first thing I'll say is Boomer Bummer was not a John original. It was this guy Gary, a very smart private equity guy. Uh, who's done very well and him and I were having a conversation and he used that phrase and I said that is incredible phrase so um, so that's that I can't take credit for it uh, I'll, I'll take credit for popularizing it let's say um, or trying to popularize it so what I would say is that in so many cases and if you look at say Brent B Shore, he's written about this small businesses are small for a reason mm. there is a reason why they haven't been consolidated. There's a reason why they're uh, very reticent to spend marketing dollars or upgrade their tech stack because in order to survive within the constraints of their particular business model, they have to be prepared for lean times or they have to be prepared with project-based revenue or whatever it is. And there are people who I have a problem with uh, who are kind of, uh, we'll call it like backwards looking the story of success, which is just riddled with survival bias, which is right. if that person is not paying themselves and barely making their debt service, they're probably not gonna be writing about it or making videos on YouTube. And a more holistic conversation about what buying one of these subscale businesses really is, because if you think you're gonna be a capital allocator, you don't have, unless you have capital, I would say, um, you think you're gonna be dealing with professionalized white collar folks, broadly speaking, you think you're going to be doing tuck in acquisitions and it's all M and a and all this stuff. That is not I, the way these businesses get well, stuck. Well, it, it's interesting that you're talking about this kind of stuff because I, I, um, when I got, I mean, I came into this world through uh, becoming a business broker. And before that, I was a finance broker helping small businesses get loans and leases mm. for equipment and stuff like that. And so uh, when I was a business broker, I did not see like MBA graduates come into my office looking at buying a business that had $2 million of revenue, right? 
what I saw were these people that you know grew to manage a business and then they wanted their own and then realized, hey, maybe I should buy one instead of starting one. Love or that. I love that, Perfect. right? <laughs> or they were the entrepreneurs themselves, maybe who had built a business and they said, now I want to grow into something else, but I, I know how hard it was to build a business. So also, I want to do it. Love that. Right. And so it was, it was literally 2019. I think I read that HBR book, HBR guide to buying a small business where they described the search fund model. And um, I read it and I thought it was absolutely insane. Like and the thing that I thought was insane was that people were willing to put up money to uh, pay a person a salary to go and search for a business. And it was only in perusing back through the book towards the beginning that I realized that they described their definition of small business in that particular book is a business with revenue of $10 million. And I was like, that's not a small business. That that's so a, a lower to, mid that's a mid market business. I have to jump in because it's such an important distinction where I think people yeah. get messed up. Which is if you one of I've become friends with a getting lunch with him tomorrow. A guy named Tim Ludwig done very well as a search fund investor. He's become a friend. Uh, when you talk to those guys about what they do and what they fund, they are incredibly disciplined in what they buy. Million mm -hmm. dollars in earnings, retiring owner, recurrent or highly recurrent revenue. Uh, essential industry, and I think there's one other one other characteristic, and that's it. And they stay right there. And the concept of entrepreneurship through acquisition, with the capital resources that those guys have, an advisory board, that I get, and they return extremely well. The issue becomes when you take that mindset and you go, "Oh, I'm going to do that," but for a subscale moving business. And I'm yes. going to slap a bunch of debt on it and I don't have extra capital and I'm only going to put 5% down and I'm going to try to, you know, bojangle a seller note to just get my way in this business. And now you're playing the game. It feels like to an influencer, it feels like it's the same thing. Hey, look, look, search funds. Huh? But it is completely different when you're operating in that, call it $350 to $700,000 in SDE range. Then when you're in a recession, you know, like retiring owner, million dollar plus in earnings, you've got some capital to, to, to you know, float a payroll. <laughs> yeah. right? So, so that's where it, it's, I don't think the core concept is wrong at all, not even close. But when people don't understand how to read a P&L and are escaping corporate world, and the first thing they want to do is put a big ass personally guaranteed loan on a small business. I think they're nuts. That's that's. <laughs> it's not anti-business buying. I love business buying. I'll buy businesses the rest of my life. It's just this. Mm. It's the it's the amateur. I don't know what I'm doing, so I'm just gonna go freaking cannonball into the deep end. It just makes me nervous. And so so let, now let's take it to some of those stories because because some people did some of these deals and then got into trouble and reached out to you. Do you want to describe kind of in broad strokes what the kind of different scenarios have been that you've seen? Yeah, there's been a couple. I think broadly speaking, and you probably know this from your day, which is almost pretty much across the board. They are folks who are by all accounts smart uh, professionally and accomplished in a corporate sense. Meaning these aren't 25 year olds. They're, they tend to be 30s or 40s. They've had some success in, you know, as a middle uh, manager of something big, right? And they're like, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so jump two feet in to ETA, which according to people who I disagree with, uh, is the easy way to get an entrepreneurship. 
Uh, and once they get in, they realize that they essentially have zero knowledge, none, because they're managing and working with people who are not white collar. Yep. They do not have capital to, you know, they get QuickBooks holds their payments for 20 days and they're in trouble because they don't have access to additional capital. They, all the people that were rah-rah around the transaction who all took their chips off the table on the day of close, 60 days in, they realize they're, you know, they're in a, they're in a battle for survival to just make their debt, not to mention grow, not to mention pay themselves, not to mention get out of running it day to day, not to mention. So, you know, I think that there's, um, the scenarios are all the same, which is it's somebody who's smart. Undoubtedly, it's somebody who's smart, but they are extremely green when it comes to what I call the knife fighting of small business. And mm. they've got a $32,000 a month payment every single month from day stinking one. Yeah. So that that's, they all have that kind of commonality. It is never guys who've been in business before, ever. Like, oh yeah, I owned a gardening company. I started it, but I want to grow and I want to grow inorganically, pop an SBA on it. Like, awesome. Love that. So cool. You know, uh, owner buyout by the GM. Love that. They know what they're doing. It's always these people who have been, in my opinion, kind of misrepresented to that buying one of these subscale service businesses is somehow easier than, I don't know, something else. <laughs> So part of what is said often is that, you know, and, and I say this too, that, that buying a business is less risky than starting one because you already get the customers. But when you and I were having a chat a couple of weeks ago, um, we started talking about how it's you're just oftentimes trading one form of risk for another. So it's like, okay, well, now I'm buying the business so I don't have the customer risk anymore, but I've added this other sort of finance overhead kind of risk because now I've got this big loan payment that I have to make. Well, one of my big challenges and the thing that I'm always talking about is is that I think that people get into this over leveraged to, to an incredible degree. Uh, a big part of the problem of that, I think, is the fact what SBA rules are in the U.S. We don't see that level of leverage anywhere else. Um, or if there is that level of leverage, it's far more like seller carried debt with than an interested party who has a real interest in seeing the new person succeed. That's right. right. And, and it's a, it's a different dynamic when when the the seller is still sort of tied in with a, a material note like 50 60 percent of the of the purchase price right that person's going to be there for guidance coaching assistance they want you to do well because they want they want to be paid they don't want the business back right so like what was what was your experience like talk about that then yeah so so my experience was for whatever reason and i'm very happy with it and i'm really glad you commented about i'm not anti debt. I'm, I just think it needs to be wielded carefully. That's basically what mm. I would say. Like it, it is uh, the analogy. It's my favorite, one of my favorite analogies I've ever used, which is debt is like a sharp knife in the kitchen, which is in the hands of an experienced chef. It makes everything easier. But for me, I'm going to cut my stinking finger off. Meaning just give me the dull one. So I've got some room for error. Like I know I can't, you know, I can't, do all the crazy stuff you do in a French kitchen, but you've been a chef for 10 years. I'm just getting started butter knife. And so uh, it's my, so like the guys are like, well, you're, you're, if you sell equity, that's really expensive. It's like, yeah, but I'm not going to cut my finger off because equity is soft and debt is hard. 
right? So, right. so that's what I would say is, is it, it's like a sharp knife in the kitchen, which is in the hands of a freaking Michelin star chef, they can do things you could never imagine. But in the hands of an amateur, ooh, it makes me a little nervous. So in terms of my experience, um, I, because of my background in the government, I'm obsessed with risk. And what I would say is my only rule was don't die. Because if I run out of money, I have to mm -hmm. go get a real job and I can't ever be an entrepreneur ever again. And so even if, or I have to spend 10 years rebuilding my relationship with my wife because of what we went through when I was cratering, right? And so for me, it was not about upside maximization. It was about getting in the game and staying in the game until I got smart. Yeah. And surviving, not having to go take a job to pay the bills because I took one shot and I was slightly off. And now I have to go back to wherever, you know? And so that was my philosophy, which was how do I stay in the game until I understand how to be good? And it took me four or five years and I'm very good right now. I would slap a ton of leverage on an acquisition because I'm good, but it took me a long time to get good. So that's that's how I think about it. And so, you know, I've, I've had lots of conversations about the difference between um, building experience in small business and being in a corporate environment. One of the things I think that comes up a lot when you are coming from that corporate space, to your point, you've got all of these individual practitioners that are all specialists in a certain thing. And, and you can be like the head of a department or the head of a business unit in a big company, and you can manage the P&L but you never have to manage the balance sheet, right? There's there's some other away party that makes sure that there's always sufficient operating capital for whatever growth and sales you intend to do, even if you're giving your customers 30 days to pay or something like that. And, and they've always got access to these other people within the organization who are pigeonhole specialists in their key functional areas. One of the, uh, one of the things I've heard from many business owners is that They'll get to a certain size and then they'll want to bring in like a, a person with experience from a bigger company to come in and help them with a certain thing. And if they go too far into a large organization, for example, and they bring in a former VP in a big company, that person actually is not really useful to them because that person is all about strategy, vision, et cetera. They've got no idea how to execute or implement anything because they just told other people do this and those other people did it. In the world of small business, sometimes the owner has to figure out the problem in MailChimp or, or whatever it happens to be. I have, you know, we have this thing where I've, I've helped some folks getting started in entrepreneurship. And a lot of what I tell them is, you know, I we're talking about generating leads for a small business. And I say, you have to sweat or spend. And if you don't have the money to spend, why do you think I got good at running Facebook ads? Because I didn't have the money to pay a good marketer mm -hmm. 10 grand a month. So it's like, well, I don't know Facebook. It's like, well, then you're SOL, right? And so a lot of this stuff, the reason is because you don't have the money to hire an email marketing expert because you have to roll up your sleeves and administer payroll or build the website. or So all of these skills that I've developed have been out of necessity. <laughs> Because yeah. I didn't, I didn't have a pile of cash. Or, oh yeah, yeah, just get a good Facebook guy. He's like ten grand a month plus ad cost. I'm like, what? I can't do that. I don't have the money for that. And so a lot of the skills I developed were because I didn't have that. And so I rolled up my sleeves and figured it the f out. Right. So that was just 
I think that people need to be prepared that they're not going to be allocators, right? They're not going to be allocating. They have to earn the right to do that, depending, again, especially if they're on the smaller end of the range in terms of an acquisition. Yeah. And by allocator, you mean some owner who's spending their time in overseeing other people who are doing everything in the business. This whole idea that you can somehow acquire a small business and put somebody else in charge and what? look at their weekly report or something like this. Um, it, it, it's interesting because I because I run into this kind of stuff all the time. Um, for most people that are going to be buying a business, that one acquisition and the debts that come with it uh, are going to be so personally significant, they're going to want to be in the middle of it every oh, day. I've yelled at people about that. I'm like, so let me get yeah. this. You're going to bet the roof over your kid's house if you're not in a homestead state. And your plan is to hire somebody and you can afford somebody who's 90 grand a year that's what you can afford. I looked at your PL and who has no downside exposure if you mess up. And your plan is to let them just have just play with the roof over your kids' heads. Head, heads. Best of luck. Best of luck. Yeah. Best of luck. Like <laughs> best of luck. <laughs> so 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 let's let's talk about some of these, some of these experiences, because um, you know, one of the things that I've seen consistently is, and and we mentioned earlier about how you can see a way that you can improve a business. Um, I'm I'm meeting a lot of searchers who have this idea that just because the seller is an older person, that somehow that makes them incompetent. And it, uh, there's one case in particular that I'm thinking about where. Uh, a searcher looked at the financial statements and and did some benchmarking and was like, oh, you know, they're often this way and they're often that way. And, and uh, there's so many ways that this business can be improved and fixed. And then they actually went and spent a day at the business with the owner. And when they actually got to see how the business was being run, yeah, it didn't have, you know, an app-based, you know, order processing system. Or it didn't have all these fancy tools. It had paper-based systems. But the thing was being run like clockwork and there was no room for any kind of uh, additional customer calls from these are technicians going out to people's homes. Uh, it was all like maxed out in every way possible. And the reason why they weren't, you know, benchmarking well in certain metrics just had to do with some local particularities of, of where they were. And, and the person came back and was like, it was a real eye opener for them. And they, they had to pay money to travel to, it was an away business. They were, distantly located from the searcher, but they came back and they were like, wow, I, this is, was a real eye-opener. I'm so glad I didn't you know, make an offer based on all the assumptions I had looking at the numbers. You meet people that are kind of focused on numbers to their detriment? Uh, I, yeah. I think it's an intellectualization, meaning what, what I've, I've, I'll tell you two things. This, this idea of the search being different from mm -hmm. the operations and then Chesterton's fence. So uh, one of the biggest issues I see that you'll identify with is a lot of times what I see with these corporate refugees is the search feels like their job. It's mostly desk-based. They're talking to a you know quality of earnings person. They're looking at contracts. It feels like what they know. And so they, a good insight. they start to develop almost like an arrogance that that somehow the map is the terrain. And they and it's like an intellectualization. It's a white collarization almost. And then what happened? They go, oh, I know this. Yeah, look, oh, look at how bad he wrote his PL is. 
And when they finally, if they do end up closing and they're actually in it, now they're getting like shot at. And they're like, this is nothing like what it looked like back at headquarters because I'm short on cash and the, the, the customer just called my cell phone. And, and now, and so one of the biggest risks that a lot of these, uh, call them wedding DJs, uh, wedding DJs uh, do is, is that they, they, they monetize, they, they monetize the hope and the dream mm. because it feels similar. And it's like, yeah, just like replace the fax and, and add this little thing. And it's like, maybe all the customers use fax machines. Maybe by slapping a bunch of SAS on it, when there's a downturn in the business, you can't survive. He intentionally kept his tech stack minimal because when the when the economy softens, which it inevitably will, you can't afford to have 15 grand in SaaS. So there's all these assumptions that I think that that are incorrect, frankly, that you just have to be a little bit more deliberate about. Second thing I'll say that goes to what you said, there's this concept in economics called Chesterton's fence, which I've written about a lot, which is don't ever replace a system until you know why it's there. Yes. Even if that takes you 30 seconds, don't assume you know, oh, that's so dumb. They do it with paper and pencil. And it's like, well, maybe the wholesaler who comes in is an old school guy and he won't do business with you if you try to get him to use the computer. Ah, let's leave it at paper and pencil. And so a good rule of thumb is don't F with stuff until you know why it's there. Now, if you know why it's there, you can F with all you want, but don't presume you know why they're using a fax machine. Maybe their customers use faxes. And so mm -hmm. it's this, this intellectual arrogance that I think is somewhat proliferated in these echo chambers and certain corners of the internet that if you talk to real operators, they come in hat in hand and they say, I'd love to learn about your business, David. You built a wonderful legacy. Interesting. Is there a reason why? Oh, it's so great to learn from you. Wow. You've been running this business for 20 years. You must be incredibly proud of what you've done. Not I have an MBA and I'm so smart because I can make the columns automatically total in Excel, which is what I think a lot of these folks do. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned a couple things here. Like one thing is about how things are being represented online and and one of the things that that I I I'm pointing out more frequently to people is that this whole buy a business as a path to entrepreneurship um the idea is creating a media industry around the idea so I mean I'm online I create content online my channel has a sponsor um I my products are something that I pitch on this the, the whole reason this channel exists is to promote me but there's other channels being built and they are media businesses and I think that some people stop they don't realize hey wait a minute this the whole purpose that this stuff is being created is to itself be a business in some way and there's something that they're they're pushing marketing, et cetera. And this kind of, you know, there's a lot of people who you used the analogy earlier, have their hands in the cookie jar. There's a lot of people who have an interest in people doing deals because they're providing services of of one form or another. And and that, you know, you just have to think about what is the position of this person that you're listening to? Um, what is the um, you know, that old uh, Roman expression, you know, K. Bene, like, like who's benefiting from the creation of this content or whatnot? I think, David, what I would also add to is that I, and you know this, because I know you're the same way that I am, which is I am the most golden retriever, positive business person in the world. And it just feels a little bit to me like 
telling somebody to have kids and saying, don't worry, you can just hire a nanny. Meaning it is the most important thing I will ever do. I will never do anything differently. But if you say it's going to be easy, there's something off here. And so what I mean is go into it with open eyes, say, wow, I'm going to work my, my little butt off. I'm going to take a calculated risk. I'm a calculated risk taker. I'm going to put in the work required. If you do that, I will give you my cell phone number and you can talk to me. What I'm not okay with is a misrepresentation about what this is because mm -hmm. it is not unicorn farts and reports from the beach in Costa Rica. It's loading dumpsters if that's what it takes to get the job done, which I've done. And so that's yeah. all. I, and I'm the most positive. I want everybody to be an entrepreneur. I just want them to go in just like I want everybody to have kids. But I want them to go in saying, I'm going to change some shitty diapers. Like, like yeah. just admit that it's okay. <laughs> like, and you can build fabulous wealth in business. Right. Well, one of the one of the things that um, that I, that kind of gets um, gets my back up is when I get approached by people who are looking for advice or guidance about things like their internal rate of return or like they're, they're, they're projecting out this small business activity the way an analyst might look at a publicly traded company right and they're and so they're 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 getting their head all into these numbers about what they expect to do and what they expect to have have happen and all this kind of stuff and i my my standard pushback on those people is um we don't know what the future holds the real question is 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 are you interested in this industry are you interested in what this business does and do you have value that you can add to this business are you uh, going to be a positive net contributor once you get your hands on the steering wheel because once you're in the business right um a whole new plethora of avenues are going to open up to you as you realize what you can and can't do with that business or what new opportunities might be there um, you could double the business in a couple of years, like forget your 30% rate of return or whatever. You could do even more with it. Um, the question is, is it reasonable to assume that you are going to be able to run it? And that, again, I think is a, is a disconnect people have when they're coming from MBA land. I think they're, they have this different perception, you know, I, I almost envision it like a mountain. Like that they're, you know, the, these schools are like up on the hill and uh, all these people have gone to school to learn about big business and how to be a C-suite executive and all this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, and, and down at the bottom of the hill, there's all this activity with entrepreneurs and people running businesses and stuff. And it's like they suddenly notice, hey, there's these little ones down here. Let's go take a look. But they're, they have that different perspective because they're not coming up the hill. They're coming down the hill. Uh, it's kind of the way I, I see it in my mind. I think it's a great analogy. I, I think it's there's probably a lot of different ways we could describe the phenomenon. To me, it's value creation on Upper Main Street, even the lower middle market is an operational exercise, not a financial exercise. That's the mm. other way I think about it is it's not spreadsheet cost of capital, maybe up up higher into the higher lower middle market or the middle market. It's about how much debt you can slap on and keeping the management team in place. And that is a different private equity game, which I am not a part of down in the place, the, the part of the mountain where I've made my living as a hunter, it is an operational exercise and it's driving uh, a key employee to AA because you can't lose them. That's the part of the mountain where I live. And yeah. yelling at QuickBooks because they froze some funds for no reason and I need to make payroll. Like that's the part of the mountain where I've learned to operate. And so somebody at the top of the mountain go, yeah, just buy bigger. 
awesome, great choice. But when you come in and you try to play at the bottom of the mountain with top of the mountain skills, you're going to get chewed up and spit out. That's how I feel. Yeah. We've got some people who are, who are joining us live. We've got, uh, we got Kevin, who's down in Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Kevin, how are you today? And uh, Gurjeet says that uh, this is his favorite YouTube channel. Hey, that's awesome. Thanks. Thanks for joining us here today. And if you've got any questions uh, that, or topics that you want me and John to discuss, just put them into the comments. We'll be, we'll be happy to, to chew on some of those. Um, some, of the, some of the big areas that I find people uh, fail to plan for when they do these deals, uh, the biggest one probably being capital expenditures. Uh, the whole idea that machinery and equipment and their replacement is not included when you look at things like seller's discretionary earnings or EBITDA. Um, I'm even hearing more and more frequently on podcasts about acquisition, how people are saying, you know, I bought this business that had, you know, a $2 million EBITDA, but now that I'm in it and we're operating and we're doing this, that, and the other thing, you know, I'm lucky to clear a couple hundred grand a year. And it just really highlights to me that sometimes people get into these deals and they really don't stop as part of their due diligence and make a proper cash flow forecast of, mm. of what it's going to look like when they start to operate. I, I call it the day two problem. You know, like the day after you buy the business, what is this going to be like? And a lot of people just aren't making those plans or, or looking at it. People ask me about acquisition and you're, you'll like, you'll laugh, David, which is... Um, uh, people say, how much, you know, how much uh, wiggle room do I need? And my answer is more, more, because, because the only way you have to quit playing the game is to run out of money. Yeah. That's the, the only way you lose is if you go to zero, there's everything else you can recover from you, a frivolous lawsuit, a key employee quitting, you can recover from all of that. And that is part of what we sign up for, but what you can't ever recover from is going to zero. You only get to die once. And so, you know, default on your payment or what miss your lease payment or whatever it happens to be. And so when people say how much cash or leeway do I need? I say more as much as you possibly shoot all six bullets and then throw the gun. Like you need all of it. That's, that's, that's the way that I approach it because I want room for error because I am so imperfect and I'm not, it always looks different in real life. So, yeah. Yeah, and and one of the ways I th I think people violate that rule quite frequently is by uh, what I call putting their last nickel into a deal. So they yeah. they say, "Here are my resources for a down payment," and now they try to max out the size of the deal they can do with those limited resources, and they don't leave anything in reserve. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, it's just another uh, reason why buying a business you have to approach it from a, a position of strength. Um, it's it's. How do I describe this? There's there's two kinds of buyers that I work with most frequently. Um, and I, and I, I recorded a video the other day, and some of these concepts are in that video too. But the, the number one group are people who, for some reason, have a difficulty getting uh, employment income. So this would be maybe someone who's new to the country or something like this. Maybe their credentials aren't recognized in the new country. Uh, they need to get a higher income. So they'll buy a business where they're buying a job for themselves and they're getting that higher income. So those Franchise, are sort of the franchises do that too, obviously. Yeah. So so these are people that are that are by necessity have to get into business because they need an income, right? Um, but for most people, especially if you've gone to secondary post-secondary education, they don't fall into that category. They've got marketable skills. They can go and get a job that is is going to give them a reasonable salary. So then what is the second group? It's what I would describe as as people who are leveling up. So they've 
they've been in a, a career of some kind. They've they've uh, um, grown through the ranks, and they say, you know what, I can't continue to grow professionally or reach the next level of what I wanted to develop into in this organization. I need to take control of myself, and then they they start almost always they examine the idea of starting a business. And then when they start to realize what the risks are of a startup, then they eventually somehow end up realizing, hey, maybe I should buy something instead. And that's what eventually maybe draws them into becoming part of my audience and stuff like that. I have this new thing. I don't know. I got to come up. Maybe you can help me come up with a better term for it, which is I actually think that there's like this third category. So there's startups, and when I think startup, I think probably they need venture money. It's technology related, whatever. Then there's obviously like the buy a business, whatever. But there's this other model that I like or think about, which is like, it's not a startup. It's a new company in an established space. Like it's not a startup. Like we're going to do dog Uber for dog walking, right? <laughs> it's like, it's, it's like, no, I'm going to start a, uh, epoxy floor business, which doesn't cost a lot of capital to get started. That's not a start. What do you say? I have a startup? No, you're like, I'm providing a service and making more money than it costs me. And I'm using this to potentially springboard into other things or see mm -hmm. if I like this industry. Like, I wish there was another word other than startup because startup to me means like, it's like Uber for dog walking. And I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> you, you you're 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 using the startup in that silicon valley kind of Correct. Which I think nomenclature right right and and so i wrote a book called smarter than a startup and i oh, specifically yeah, put i specifically put that word in yeah. because i wanted to it to appear in search results for people looking for things about startups but um you know, in my mind, if you're starting a new business, you know, moving and storage business, you know, people yeah. move houses, people have been hiring moving companies forever. Yeah. Starting a moving company, you know, if someone came to me and they said, I want to get into business, uh, my advice to them is never to try to reinvent something from scratch. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. we don't know, we don't know if there's any real demand, but I can tell you there's demand for moving companies, right? If you Because there's a bunch of them. If you take Instagram extremely seriously and then you sub out the actual moving company or the actual moving mechanics and you charge a premium because of how good and visible you are on social media, that's not a startup to me. That's a like it's a, like I just I love the name of that smarter than a startup where it's it's just like there's this association with it. And I'm like, man, it's got enduring. Just take Yelp really seriously. Take Yelp mm. really seriously. And now. The demand is there. You know the demand's there, you know? And I think for me, uh, David, talking about the boomer bummer, I think the dirty secret that a lot of these people who throw some of these terms around around retiring baby boomers is the majority of these businesses, and I've, I've written about this before, the majority of these businesses to me are not transactable. But mm. the demand is still there. And so the way to capture the demand without buying some subscale moving company or whatever it is, is to do one of these new company i don't know we got to come up with a better name for it i don't mind franchises in many cases right there are other ways to get exposure to the retiring baby boomers and the customers they've left behind other than trying to like pg into a four hundred thousand dollar yucky company that the trucks are falling apart and i don't even know what the hell i just bought so that's like you know well i mean this i've done uh videos before interviews about the whole silver tsunami 
terminology, that that whole yeah. idea about how these retiring people are, you know, this greatest transfer of wealth. The yeah. reality still is that 80% of businesses listed for sale on these online business for sale websites don't sell, right? And a lot of these businesses could be very lucrative and profitable for their owners today, okay? So there could be a baby boomer earning half a million dollars a year off their business, uh, but that's because they don't have any debts. They've, they've yeah. paid for everything, right? Exactly. And so in, in their hands, it's a good cash flowing machine. The minute you try to acquire it and pay some kind of multiple of cash flow, and then you apply the leverage, and then you've got the debt service, and then you 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 look at everything, and you're like, hey, wait a minute. Once it's in my hands, it doesn't nearly work as well. Then then this is the problem. And and many times, of course, these sellers are being told by uh, different advisors that their business may be worth more than it really is, and so they come into the market with an overinflated expectation. One of the common questions I ask when I'm talking with buyers, when we look at a business and try to figure out what a reasonable offer on the business might be, is I'll say, like, what do you think it might cost to start this? You know, if you were going to buy all these assets and you were going to start this, what would it cost? It's always going to be some amount less than the, the price of the business, right? If it's a good profitable business. But then the question is that gap, that differential. Like, how long could you lose money in startup mode with that money, with that investment, you know, like, are we, are we at really saying that, that, um, you know, you're willing to invest four years of, you know, startup losses up front to avoid those four years, or could you get it to make money faster? Like the, 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 the you don't need to do a deal. You need to be a business person. Uh, you're, you're singing, you're singing my language right? Which is you want to get in the game, get in the game. There's a lot of different ways to do it. And then if you want to go acquire to scale faster or to pay, love that. I think my big thing, you know, I don't want my message to be muddled. I think my big thing is just the, an escaping corporate refugee needs to be very, very, very careful about thinking that a leveraged buyout of a subscale service business is the way to get a seat at the table. That's just, that's like my, if I have nothing else, if you put that on a billboard, that's what I would want to express. It's not anti-debt. It's not anti-acquisition. It's not anti-ETA. It's not anti whatever you want to call it. It's not anti that. It's anti, I want to be an entrepreneur. I'm 40 years old. I have two and a half kids and a white picket fence. And so I'm just going to like YOLO my way into a, like a pest control company. I, pest control is not bad because it has recurrent revenue, but whatever, you know, that, that's, I think my, that's my big, my big, uh, my big jihad. We've got some, uh, some comments here. Anthony says, Hey folks. Uh, and he says he's been following John for a while, uh, on your blog and email list. Hey, Anthony, thanks for joining us here today. I've got a question from David for a little bit of advice says I've been having trouble hiring for my cleaning business, both residential and commercial. How do you go about hiring competent people? You got some feedback for, you, for David? Yeah, for you. For me. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, yeah, I would think about it two different ways, depending on what it was. The first is uh, if it is for like live uh, blue collar people, because I've helped a lot of people build systems for that, whether that's like house painters or uh, cleaners or fast food workers or whatever. I find that if you treat it like a marketing funnel, it does really well. Mm -hmm. Meaning write your job post, not with corporate BS, with copy, right? Uh, speed to lead. When someone applies, are you responding right away? 
are you reminding them just like with sales, right? You don't just like post it out on indeed and then email them once, two days later, you have to treat it like it's marketing. And I find that can fix a recruitment funnel for low skilled folks. So that's tends to be how I do it. So write good copy, respond quickly, you know, add value. You know, that, that's what I find. Uh, that's, so that's how I do it with like entry level or blue collar or whatever. If it's for people that are like in more demand, like high level recruiting, so I've helped folks who like need to hire veterinarians or massage therapists where there's like, or mechanics where there's real competition for it. The way that I hire like that is everybody says like, oh, we need to post more on LinkedIn or something that'll help with our hiring. And I'm like, BS, pay them 20% above market. And the way that you pay them 20% above market is in all of your back office stuff, use global talent and take your savings and plow it into your in-person people. And magically you don't have a veterinarian problem anymore. Yeah. You pay 20% above what market is. You don't have to raise your prices and you don't take a margin hit by having the person who answers your phone, not make $48,000 a year. Yeah. Stick that person in Mexico with fluent English, pay them 15,000 and take some of those savings and plow it into your veterinarians. And magically by paying 20% what your competitors can in the competition for talent, you win. And so you re rejigger your labor, your labor methodology. So that's how yeah. I do it. Um, one of the other uh, sort of tricks that uh, that I've seen people use more recently too is about expectation building. You know, like if you have a, um, a, we often think about this with our customers, you know, setting the expectation of what the service or product is going to be like when they deal with your company. So you can also do the same thing in your hiring funnel. Um, so when somebody applies uh, for the job, maybe what you do is reply back with a link to a video that you've created that shares, you know, this is what we do here every day, and this is what you'll be doing, and this is what our company does, and this is why it's important. And and fill in a lot of the the questions that a person, if you think, what kind of questions would this person ask me at a job interview? You can front load all of that. Um, and I know people who've done this and they've had applicants reply back with, oh, I'm so excited after watching that video. And other people who will say, I watched the video, take me out of your process because I don't think it's for me. And it can just, it can really help to streamline who is or who isn't uh, willing to go through your, uh, your hiring exercise. Um, Dave also says, uh, uh, thank you to me. Uh, thank you for helping me analyze the business before I purchased it. You really eased many worries I had before buying it. Thank you very much, David, for that. Uh, yes, it's one of the things that um, me and my team do is we do uh, these analyses of businesses that are for sale to give people an idea of what a reasonable price or offer should be. Thanks, David. Um, we've got one here from Annabelle Marine who says, do you guys have any transitioning tips? What if key people leave and how to pivot? So this I would be assuming is with the respect to the purchase of a business. I've got some tips. You got anyone, any that you want to throw out there, John? Either one. Okay. So, so uh, the number one thing that many, many, many buyers of businesses are worried about is that key staff will leave. And uh, I remember once sitting in a meeting between a buyer and seller when a buyer expressed that concern to the seller and the seller says, um, it was a restaurant. He said, this is a restaurant. I guarantee you within a year, they'll all be gone. And uh, so the key is you have to get processes and systems and checklists and all that kind of playbook kind of stuff uh, because you will have to replace every person at some point. And so if the systems don't exist when you're buying the business, if the seller hasn't put that in place, 
when you're buying the business, you have to have a plan to get that stuff documented and uh, put together ASAP. Uh, ideally, as part of the transition with the seller present so that they can fill you in on all the details that may not be documented anywhere. Want me to comment? How about you, John? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Any anything to add? I'll tell you. I'll tell you two different things, David. I'll pitch you on something, even though it's not really. Pitch. Yeah. I'll read a. I'll read a quote and then I'll pitch you something. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from the chairman of Toyota, uh, Fujiu Cho, that answers this question to me is, "We get brilliant results from average people managing brilliant processes, while our competitors get average or worse results from brilliant people managing broken processes." And so. When I build companies, I build systems that people operate, not people. Yeah. Because yeah. people leave, they get sick, they get hit by buses, including the owner, the GM, the key crew guy, whatever. So when I come into a company, I think who has knowledge in their brain that I need to get out as soon as thinking possible. I call it the hit by a bus test. If David mm -hmm. gets hit by a bus, can we still make payroll? No. Well, shit, David, let's talk about how to run payroll. I actually started a company that's doing really well, working with a lot of different companies called teamwiki.co, uh, where we do live interviews with members of your team and we build all of the operational documentation. I was actually thinking about going to business brokers and saying, hey, in order to get an extra multiple when you sell these businesses, hire us, it's a couple thousand bucks a month. We'll write all this stuff down and now you're gonna, you might get an extra turn because you've de-risked the business by externalizing this knowledge base. By, by interviewing key employees and saying, here's how we run payroll. Here's how we uh, do purchase. It's called teamwiki.co. I have a CEO who runs it. And I'm like, you could get a higher multiple because you've de-risked the transaction. Because now it's like, here's how we return an order that's been rejected by the supplier. But if I go into the business, it's like staging a home. I think that yeah. the business seller should pay. You might get an extra hundred grand. So I haven't done that yet, but it's one of my ideas for you. Um, so, so when I was a business broker, I used to try to help some of these business owners by buying them copies of E-Myth Revisited yeah, and, yep. and none of, nobody read the book. Right. And it was, so this it is was, done for you. this is done. Yes. For you. And, done so I did end up creating a process that, um, if anyone's curious that there's basically, if you go over to, uh, easysmallbizsystems.com. There's there's a thing that people can can enroll in there. It's a half day program on how to do this. But yes, a done for you is another level uh, you know of service above that for people that that just don't want to get involved. It's it's interesting though. Like the way I position that kind of organization and systematization is, it's an investment in time to make your business better and make it easier to manage and usually ends up becoming more profitable because as you're going through this ana analysis and understanding process, you usually identify problems or underutilized resources or something of that nature that helps you make the business better as you're working on it. So I don't think it's something people should do when they're getting ready to sell. I think every business owner that is making well, money general, needs yeah. to do it to make their business better. Like as, only, as, I do it on every business, right? I do it in all my businesses, every business. The, the thing for me, I wrote a newsletter about this called, Are Your Employees Holding You Hostage? Which was, I also wanted to build a company where if any person got hit by a bus or asks for a tripling of theirs, if I, let's say I'm a key employee and on a ball tries to get me on some retention program, right? And I sign it and I know that I've got the new business owner 
by the by the private parts. I'm going to come in and say, look, I walk tomorrow unless you do X and I want a company. And I didn't ever want to buy and run a company like that. I want to say everyone is replaceable, including me, by the way. We run a business, not a series of individuals. And so that's the other thing for me. It was always de-risking transactions because I never wanted to have a tough conversation with an employee who knows he's got leverage over me. If I leave, I I just never wanted that. (laughs) So so the follow-up question that Annabelle put is he says, I'm thinking of a retainer package to key individuals. And this is often something that I hear from people um, who are buying a business. They're like, I'm going to put some kind of bonus plan in, in place. What they're essentially doing is telegraphing their understanding of the fact that they're they're being held hostage by exactly. these employees. They're saying like, like I know that I'm susceptible to your every whim, so please accept this money. Um, the the thing that I would say to really be careful about that is um, once you create that bonus, then all of a sudden you are you are changing sort of the expectations of what the job is worth. So. If you if you say, hey, you stick around for six months, I'm going to give you this $5,000 bonus, you will probably end up in a position where the person's salary has to be increased by that amount going beyond that period of time. Like it's it's It usually then creates an expectation that the job is worth more. I, I also think that in a, a lot of these small business environments, money is absolutely useful, but again, all, they don't get along with you. The old owner promised them that they were going to take it over. So they're pissy at you and they start doing a bad job. Like there are so many risk factors that can't be, that can't be solved by a little bit of a spiff. And so for me, I just never wanted to be in a position owning a company where I go, I sure hope David doesn't figure out that we're screwed if he quits, because I know that David's going to come in and twist the knife and I don't want to be a slave. I I don't want to be held hostage by my team. And so for me, I just wanted to create a business that exists separate from all of us, including me. And then somebody comes in and goes, give me a double my salary or else I leave. And I go, best of luck. Best of luck. I'll write your recommendation letter. It sounds like you're, but if they have me leverage over me, not my favorite. Yeah, totally. Totally. And, um, uh, Annabelle says, yes, uh, that, that was the hesitation was, was that, you know, basically admitting that, uh, that, uh, they have leverage over you. Uh, you know, we're getting up here to the end of the hour, John, and, uh, we have to wind things up here. Um, you mentioned, um, a couple of the different sort of businesses that you're into. What, what, you know, ones would you like to share with the audience? Who might want to reach out later and, and make contact with I you? I would say just check me out on Twitter because I'm always I'm about I'm launching something publicly this uh, Friday uh, in the global talent space. I've been working on something for a while now, um, and we're we're finally going live with it. But I'm very very passionate, particularly because of my background in the foreign service, with helping small businesses use uh, high quality, low cost global talent better. Uh, and so really it's not outsourcing, it's not offshoring, it's not BPO, it's genuinely integrating people from around the world in your companies that create better outcomes, increase the quality for your customers, that kind of thing. Because in all of my business activities and acquisitions, having people from around the world contribute to my success and the business's success was just a complete, it was like using the internet before anybody else did. It was just like so good. I could deliver so much more of a quality product. I could, you know, give better benefits. I could just do wonderful, wonderful things by just hiring globally instead of within 20 minutes of my warehouse. So yeah. I would say check me out on Twitter. I'm launching it live officially on Friday. 
Awesome. Well, congratulations with that, and good luck with everything. Um, I'll be I'll be curious to tune in and and uh, and see what you're doing. But I want to thank you on behalf of the audience and everyone who tuned in uh, for coming and talking with me today. Um, just to to reiterate that the reason that small businesses trade for such low multiples of cash flow, if you compare them with things like Coca Cola or you know other big companies, is because these are the riskiest assets that exist. Like um, small business is risky and small business is hard and um, all, it creates a lot of opportunities for the right people. Um, and, and the last little thing that I'll drop in here is that it's also one of the few places where if you're really keen to get into small business and you're really keen to develop that skill set that you mentioned before, you know, learning how to do all these things because you have to, um, you can get paid to learn by working for a small business. And very often when I suggest this to people, they're, they're kind of surprised to think that I would, I would suggest that. But uh, I've, listen, I've met people who've successfully opened pizzerias, for example, after they've been the delivery guy, the waiter and the chef in another pizza business, right? Like you can learn these skills and get paid uh, by taking a job in, in one of these types of businesses and really get a better idea of what you're in for if you become an owner. David, I'll be very specific. I just gave this advice Friday to a retiring gunnery sergeant from the Marine Corps. And I said, go find a business person whose life and business career you admire and say, I want to be attached to your butt for six months for $20 an hour. The only rule is that you have to bring me into all your meetings because if you do a good job, he will fund your acquisition. Yeah. Because they have more opportunities than competent people, but you have to be willing to get coffee for six months and say, how can I be useful to learn how business really works? You approach someone and say, I've been in the Marine Corps for 20 years. I don't know jack about business, but I promise I will carry water with a positive attitude and push the ball forward. In six months, they will fund your acquisition, but you have to be willing to humble yourself and get in the stinking weeds and get the coffee, right? And that was my advice to him. <laughs> people who have been successful over the long haul in business are you know usually end up being wealthy people and wealthy people are always looking for investment opportunities and one of the things that they're looking for is people to invest in i am the you know there's a there's a tab on my blog site over at davidcbarnett.com called buy a business with no money and it's a collection of all the videos i've made over time where i break down how a lot of these claims are are ridiculous and how they don't work etc cetera, etc cetera. but there's one video on there that describes a real no money deal in which uh, a person joined a business they be, they grew to become one of the managers they got to know the owner over a long period of time several years and then the owner wanted that person to buy the business and the video describes the process they went through and that person bought that business with none of their own money. But obviously they were able to leverage the relationship that they had established and the trust and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, creating these strong relationships with people who've been there and done that, like, um, yeah, getting yourself into a network of business owners and creating these relationships is a key to a lot of uh, solutions. Awesome, John. All right, so we got a bunch of people uh, saying thank you. This was great. Talk to you later. Thank you, everyone who who came in and saw us live here today. And uh, John, we'll see you next time. And let me 
wind things up for the end of the show. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy. Go over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, where you can learn more about me and how I work with my clients. You can learn more about my books and courses that I've prepared for you. You can find out how to subscribe to my email list, the YouTube playlists, and more. There's literally hundreds of hours of content there, all for free, and I'd love for you to be my guest. Special thanks go to Mark Willis at Lake Growth Financial, today's video sponsor. Mark helps people better manage their personal and business finances through the bank on yourself insurance strategy. This is something I've done personally and I've seen others use it successfully for years. Go to newbankingsolution.com to find all the interviews I've done with Mark and learn more about the advantages of these programs. While there, sign up for a free consultation to learn what this solution might look like for you.